Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today on the show, we've got Adia Dixon-Wiggins joining us, and Adia has a really impressive story. She went to Yale, and she graduated from Columbia Law School, spent five years in Japan, and today she's founded her own business centered around a beauty tool, which you guys will learn a little more about later, but we learn a lot from Adia throughout this process, and we really enjoyed our conversation with her. We hope you all do as well. And as always, we hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that episode, though, as usual, we got to take a quick moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus. And their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to work with like-minded businesses to raise money and participate in large-scale volunteer efforts and improve educational opportunity for youth in our community. To learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That's smallbizcares.org. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself become the fastest growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. All right, Congress, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. We are very excited today. We got the chance to talk to Adia Dixon-Wiggins. And Adia is the founder and president of UB Beauty. And before founding UB, Adia was serving as director of international counsel for Wendy's. And as a mother of two on top of that, she was leading a busy life and found she never had time for her beauty, which is why she created UB. Centered around a nine-in-one beauty brush, which slides onto your finger, UB sets out to make beauty available to anyone. We're really excited to talk to Adia about her story and everything she has going on today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Adia. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I'm excited too. We actually, so we had the chance to meet at the Innovation Summit yes. recently. And yes. we did some podcasting there, but unfortunately there's a little bit of background noise. But 
that means we're lucky enough to get to have you on here today and, and really get in depth on your story. So I appreciate you coming out and joining us. One of the first places we kind of always like to start is talk a little bit about life before founding UB. So all the highlights from your life, whether that's college, childhood, anything that kind of leads you to today. And I know you've got a lot of experience, so I'm excited to kind of hear your background. Um, yeah, I'm happy to share it. Um, but before we do that, I just want to, I just want to clap it up for your description of UB. I think um, at the top there, that was actually one of the most concise and beautiful descriptions of the product. So, all I'm saying is, if you're looking for a sales role or marketing role, <laughs> you know, on the little side hustle, like uh -huh. we could always use you on the team. Um, yeah, so life before UB, which feels like an eternity ago, but it was really only about two years. Life before UB uh, and before everything, we'll start at the beginning, I went to Yale undergrad, got my degree in East Asian studies, which really informed my worldview. Got that degree, moved immediately to Tokyo and lived there in and around Tokyo for about five years. Worked on my language, my understanding of culture, was on a few TV shows, wrote um, a book of essays. Wait, 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 we can't just go over that. Hold <laughs> on, you were on a few TV. You is, were on a few TV shows. I was, on a, I was on a few TV shows. I went. So here's here's my philosophy. If you were to have asked me if I, my philosophy on life and how to live to your fullest when I was 22 and getting on a plane to Tokyo, I couldn't have articulated it. But consistently, I have always wanted to have the most experiences on this planet to explore, learn about myself, and really learn about others. And so when I went to Japan, it really was primarily to continue my education in an, un, in an informal way. So meet people, learn how to cook, work on my language, um, travel. But I thought, if I'm going to do this, I have to open myself up to all of the experiences that unfold before me, which is why I ended up there for five years. So um, I had been in Tokyo um, teaching for about a, a year when some friends of mine introduced me to um, an agent who was looking to place some English-speaking women on a couple of TV shows. And I thought, what better way to meet people and have a unique experience than to audition for this role. So audition for that role was on this wacky TV show. I don't know if you've ever seen like kind of like, you know, early 2000 Japanese sort of comedy game show talk shows. It's a very interesting uh, genre. Um, so I was on one of those and then got invited to audition for a couple other shows and was a re ended up being a regular on a um, newsutainment type program um, that filmed and aired live every Saturday night for about a year. So... So did you stop the teaching and just and was that your full source income? No, that was that no because it didn't pay for shit. Um, but but it was but very the fame the, right. the fame of it yes the fame no I, I actually um I did have a couple of times after I'd been on that show because um, it was fairly popular um, but after I'd been on that show for maybe three or four months I did have a couple of times where I'd be on the subway. It, you know, in, in Tokyo on my way to my day job, and there'd be some whispers and points like, is it you? And sometimes they would actually recognize me, but other times they, were, they thought I was like any kind of um, generically famous black woman from America, which was also fine, because at the time it was, you know, it was Beyonce, 
maybe Rihanna, still kind of early for Rihanna, but um, but I accepted that too. I was happy to say yes, I am Beyonce. Um, <laughs> yeah, I get right. Ryan, I get Ryan Gosling a lot here in the states. So. I I can see it. Yeah, I was pretty, actually yeah. gonna ask. I was yeah. I was like, who invited Ryan Gosling right. here? You know, I was uh, really like, <laughs> you're, you're giving Josh too much credit here. It's gonna go to his head. We gotta stay away from this. So so we started the Yelp one. I'm curious a little bit more about mm-hmm. um, if you're comfortable going into it like deeper in your childhood. Did you grow up with parents who? Because uh, you seem like you have a very strong understanding and appreciation of the world and all mm. the the aspects that it can offer you. Like even East Asian studies, understanding the value that it can provide you. Like most people will look at uh, a degree that's not in the, like the hard sciences and think like in this world, Why? what are you going to get out of it? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. You, you've clearly understood the value that it can provide. Did you grow up in a household that was well-educated or what did that look like? Um, my, my father is a recently retired doctor, got his medical degree at Penn my mother um, was a practicing social worker until we moved out to Long Island, um, practiced in New York, and got her degree, her master's from Columbia. Um, so yes, well-educated, but I think more importantly, they um, encouraged me to be who I am. Um, and I've always been interested in languages, um, in culture, in understanding people. Um, and trying to find different ways to serve. And so that curiosity um, and hunger for the world translated early on into lots of foreign film. They, you know, we would sit Friday nights and order Chinese food and watch, you know, name a, um, a Chinese film uh, with subtitles. My mom, my sister, and I would sit and do that. And that actually led me to the film that encouraged me to start studying Japanese, which was this old film called Tampopo. It's, it's, uh, it's about a woman who wants to be a ramen chef, um, and there are all these hurdles. It's, you know, a comedy. But it was just wacky. It was the most bizarre thing I'd ever seen. Um, and the sound of the language from that movie, I fell in love with it. So. And that was, I think I was, you know, maybe a senior in high school, went to Yale fully intending to be a doctor. You know, I was actually a chemistry major um, because that's what you were supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. That's the, you know, how are you going to pay for all this educational debt? Well, you better be a doctor, right? But I just, I just wasn't into it. And I always felt like there was something different or more that I should be doing. And so my sophomore year, I took a Japanese course just because thought the language was so cool and I had room in my schedule for one different thing. I was taking, you know, calculus, I was taking um, chemistry, I had a couple of labs and then some other stuff that I just really wasn't into. And I fell in love all over again with the language and it was like, there's there's no choice. I don't have a choice at this point. So pursued it. So when you go to get on a plane to Tokyo, are, are you concerned about leaving your family behind or have you always been able to be pretty good at being independent? What's it's gonna sound crazy, but um, no, I didn't even think for a second. Not even, not even for a second did I think, oh my gosh, I'm never, you know, when am I gonna see my family next? Or all my friends are, all my friends are in New York now, and they're all drinking together without me. Like it was never. That sounds really cold. Like I, <laughs> to, to articulate it, it sounds. Actually, that sounds really cold, but I was just. I don't want to say driven, because that sounds like you know I'm being push but I I was lured there was something pulling me it feels like passion like a so passionate that you kind of you they talk about the flow you know I mean it almost seems like from the way you describe it you just got caught up in and what you wanted to pursue I think that's it yeah. well yeah and I think like I I can understand where you're coming from because I came from 
the West Coast to go to Ohio State, mm -hmm. and I don't know anybody in the state of Ohio when I'm mm -hmm. leaving, but I just remember feeling like, I, this is just something I'm supposed to go do. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that like, this is, I know where I'm going, it's the right place, I'm excited about it. And I didn't really think about that much. It wasn't, you know, I knew I was going to miss my family. I knew it was there, right? Yeah. You don't, it's not completely not there. Right. But it's like, it's just like, a, well, this is just what I got to go do. Yeah. It's so interesting. And, you know, um, I think when you are led to those things by some, you know, seemingly intangible pull, those of us who are fortunate actually follow through. I think there are a lot of people who feel the pull and the draw, but are um, overly concerned with, well, how is this going to make me money? What are my friends going to say? What am, are my parents going to be disappointed? And not to say that you shouldn't, you know, be practical about decisions, but at some point you kind of do have to give in a little bit, even when things seem a little unclear. Mm -hmm. So you get done with the year in Tokyo. It, when do you five start? years, right? Five, I was there five years, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Five years in Tokyo. I was I was there for the year that I thought I was going to be there, plus four more. Right. So, yeah. So you get done doing TV shows. You, mm -hmm. When do you start thinking about coming back for, and when does law school come into the equation? So law school had always kind of been looming in the background as something like I should consider. But I knew it's very expensive and there are a lot of unhappy lawyers. So I didn't want to just jump in and join that pond of unhappy lawyers. I wasn't willing to go to law school and invest that type of money and time until I knew or had some sense of what I wanted to do with the degree. My last year and a half working in Tokyo, I had the fortune of getting a job at a paying job, unlike the you know TV work I was doing, um, a paying job working at Tokyo Electric. Um, I was the only gaijin, which is you know foreigner, working in the Kokusaibu, which is the International Affairs Department. And I did translations for them. I did some presentations on the state of the market, specifically with respect to energy deregulation, which at the time was the trend globally, helping them to prepare for their own de energy deregulation. And I just, I was, I fell back in love with academics, and in particular, this little area of the law. Um, so I knew it was time, it was time to apply and, and pack up all of my things and return back to New York. Was there any other consideration besides going back to New York? Were there any schools that you were thinking about? Um, so I applied, you know, <laughs> this is, I mean, I think this is like a, a theme with my life also, like, okay, you make a decision. Well, how are you going to prepare for it? Well, I applied to two schools. And so if it didn't work out for those two, I guess I was going to be in Japan much longer, right? So I applied to Columbia and I applied to uh, Georgetown. And so I knew I wanted to go to either one of those two. I applied to Columbia, like early decision or whatever the program was, and got in. So that was that was it. Like that was the entire plan. So, right. <laughs> yeah, there was nothing. There was nothing beyond that. It was just it was that. And I mostly I applied to Columbia because it. I did get to that point after five years, um, where I started to feel, um, just wondering what my parents were doing. Right. And they were totally fine. I mean, they're they're not super old, healthy, um, but on a day-to-day -day basis, I, want, I wondered, did they cook dinner today? Are they, are they cool? Like, are they having fun? Are they, and so I started to kind of miss them, and so New York was a pretty clear choice. Have you ever been, you, you sound like pretty serendipitous, I think, if I'm using that word appropriately. Have you ever been the person who really stresses or worries about 
where your life is going to go next or what you're going to achieve or is it more just enjoying the moment that you're in? Uh, when I was, oh, what a good question. When I was in my 20s, I think I spent, and particularly when I was in Japan, my <laughs> one of my, my roommates at the time, every so often I still like check in with her. And she's like, you still stressed? Because we would sit up late drinking coffee, wondering, wondering about like what the next job was going to be, like where are we going to live and if we were ever going to get married and like this boyfriend that we're dating, like is it going to work out? And like all, like all those things that you stress out over, whether you're you know, a gaijin living in Japan or, you know, living back at home. Um, so, yeah, I stress, but in hindsight, none of the stress really amounted to anything. You know, it wasn't like we're sitting up late making plans and then we're executing on those strategies. It was just like, oh, my God, I'm so nervous. So I definitely, I definitely worried more when I was in my 20s. And then I think I just got to this, I don't know if it's like, I, I, I don't want to say it's arrogance. I think it's just faith where I know that if I kind of set my intentions generally, and those intentions are good, and for the benefit of others primarily, that's the biggest thing, um, then things are gonna kind of work out. I think that's a good mindset to have about life. So I guess, you know, you get into Columbia, mm -hmm. you go through law school, any big events in law school? How was that? I mean, it was yeah, law I mean, school, it's gotta be it tough, was right? law school. It was law school, I think um, it was a little tough for me for two reasons, one, I was, I felt like an old lady because I had taken five years off and and I was in classes with kids, perceived kids, who'd gone straight through. And so they were still in that very rigorous mindset of like, go to class, get your books, study, you know, barrel through and um, and kind of focus. And I I I had to retrain myself to be back in, in academia. Um, but the other thing that was challenging was I had spent five years in Japan, which, as we all know, culturally is very different. So the very characteristics of the most successful law student are the exact opposite characteristics of what a successful person in, a, in Japanese society is, right? So bold, aggressive, loud, arrogant, <laughs> not to like, you know, I have a lot of good friends who were very successful in law school, so this is no knock to them, although I will tell them to their faces that they were bold and arrogant and aggressive. But that was not my personality. Um, I think living in Japan fundamentally altered my DNA because before I had been that person. Um, but I think I gained a larger sense of my role as one person in society, right? Um, me as part of the fabric as opposed to this, you know, the kind of myth of American individualism, exceptionalism. And so that made law school kind of a challenge, culturally at least. But I graduated and I got a job and I passed the bar. So it all worked out in the end. Yes. So I'm kind of curious a little bit more about that, that success identity of people in Japan and that culture. Mm -hmm. Successful people let's say just in business there, are they, are they typically pretty humble, quiet? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, I think um, it's interesting because in general, now this was at least at the time, things may have changed some. I assume they have. But at the time, it was uh, hard work was rewarded. And sure, politics played a role, but humility, hard work, willingness to pick up the slack that others, you know, couldn't handle you know, the willingness to contribute more and, and then more and then more again um, without accolades or praise. I remember 
when I was at my law firm, which is a great firm, there was, and there's always at firms, this sort of conversation about how to retain top associates. How do you retain talent? And a lot of the conversation is always around, well, make sure that people feel appreciated. Make sure you're praising people and thanking them and rewarding them. I just remember thinking, this is bananas. Like, I, I do, like, as a matter of just who I am. I praise and I thank and I express my gratitude. But to think that as an employee, you need that in order to perform, right? Like you, that people were leaving because they didn't feel like they were, like they weren't made to feel special was to me, I just didn't sit well with me. Um, I think because of my time in Japan where like, if anything, it was embarrassing to be called out or honored or rewarded publicly. It was like embarrassing. You know, you're just one of everyone and we're all working together. So the people who exhibited those characteristics typically did better in a Japanese company. So you wrap up at Columbia. Mm -hmm. What does the next move look like from there? Um, From Columbia, I um, started my practice at a firm called Deba Boys and Plimpton, um, white shoe firm in New York, amazing clients. It's known as um, a very nerdy firm, which worked for me very nicely because a lot of interesting, quirky personalities who were interested in art and culture and travel, but also very just excellent, shrewd lawyers. So I practiced there for about five years. I practiced in um, securities, capital markets, uh, and M&A before moving to uh, Columbus. And what, and what brought you to Columbus then? Well, it was two things. So the other thing that happened in law school was I met my husband, okay. who is from Stowe, right, from uh. Northeast Ohio. So I remember it. He hates when I tell the story, and he swears it didn't happen. But it happened. If you're listening, you know this happened. We started dating. I kid you not. Within two weeks of our first date, he says to me, you know what? And I was like, what? He's like, one day I'm going to marry you, and I'm going to move you to Ohio. And I said to him, you're not getting either of those. And sure enough, right, talk about setting your goals and intentions, right, you know, declaring to the world, to the universe, what it is you're going to achieve and accomplish. And so he got what he wanted. So we got married while we were still living in New York. We had our first child. And when our baby was one, we realized we didn't, we never saw each other. We never saw the baby. We never saw our friends. Forget Broadway shows and you know musicals and shopping and new restaurants. We never did any of that because our lives were entirely dedicated to work because of the pace of the city, the demands of our jobs, and frankly, the cost of living. Um, there was no opportunity for either of us to kind of take a step back or you know slow down. Like we had to make you had to make money if you want to pay rent and 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 eat. So it was time for us to start considering where to go. He floated Ohio, and I was like, I don't know where that is. But sure enough, he had a client here, and one day said, you know what, I'm going to see this client. Why don't you come out and just see, just see, maybe this would be someplace we could live. And I was like, all right, I'll come out, but I'm not going to like it. And we were driving down Dublin Granville, right past the Wendy's headquarters. And he said, oh, there's Wendy's there. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know it was here. This is so exciting. And the rule had been, anywhere that we move has to be someplace where we can both continue our careers in a significant way, right? And no one's taking a step back to sacrifice, not at this point so early in our careers. We needed someplace where we'd both be excited about our career prospects. 
And he's like, well, why don't you talk to some people and see if they have a job? And I was like, oh. And we're in the car, and I'm on the website, on the careers page, and I was like, oh, they're looking for someone who has my skill set and, you know, just about my level of experience. So I did some sleuthing around and found some people on LinkedIn and had a job offer within two weeks. So then it was time to move because the job was, by all accounts, a dream job for someone, you know, five years of practice. They wanted international experience with a particular focus on Japan and M&A skills, which was like, check, check, check. Um, so we moved primarily for that job. I, uh, I, most of the work that I did when I was at the firm was um, insurance related, um, a lot of private equity acquisitions and dispositions, but um, you know, every so often you'd get to do the diligence on the, um, the sort of opco level. So if it was a restaurant or if it was you know, a t-shirt company or whatever it was. Um, but I just, I really liked tangible things. And I did one restaurant deal that was so interesting to me because restaurants are bananas. Like nothing ever goes right. Everything is crazy at all times because you have so many people at different levels of skills and interests and competing, you know, egos. So it was very interesting to me. So a job that was at a place where there was a physical product made and consumed to me um, was very exciting. And also, frankly, I had a lot of warm feelings about the brand having grown up on Long Island, you know, and the sort of, you know, special treat on the weekends would be we would go to Wendy's and have our sandwiches and fries and and it was very nice. So yeah, it was a no brainer for me. Okay. And so how long do you spend at Wendy's before you start thinking about starting your own business? Yeah, so um yeah, I think it was it was a few things. Well, I don't, that's, that's an interesting question because, like, I think I, it wasn't until, you know, maybe a month before I left that I realized what I was doing, that I was actually starting my own business. Um, but in some respects, it was probably two or three months into my time there that my interest started to expand from just legal practice to business law, you know, heavy on the business, light on the law. And the, my role as international counsel put me in a space that was effectively a startup within a larger, within a larger company. I mean, at the time, we had under 500 restaurants globally. Most of them were franchise looking to expand our footprint. So it's, there was a small team of us working to build this business. And it was tremendously exciting and tremendously rewarding. And so I think... I kind of got the bug through that experience. But as for Yubi, that didn't happen until sometime around 2017. And 2017 was when my husband launched a consumer product that he'd invented. So between my work with Wendy's, building this business, and working alongside my husband, building his company and his product, I think that was it. That was, there, was, there was no turning back for me because um, it was all just, you know, in keeping with this sort of earlier theme of have as many experiences and explore as wide and deep as you possibly can. This was, I mean, how much wider and deeper can you get than starting a company? Hey there, Conquerors. We're going to take a quick break here to talk about one of our sponsors here on the show. 
Studio 301. Mike and I, we've been working with Studio 301 on our rebrand, doing our website, doing some new photography, working on some logo adjustments, and just really positioning Conquering Columbus uh, in a more professional light. And I can tell you, Mike, it's been the funnest experience and the easiest experience I've ever had working with any type of creative agency. They come to the table with all kinds of awesome ideas that we're really excited about and everything that we've come up with so far and that we're about to put out is is awesome. I'm super excited about it. Yeah, I, I haven't been more excited about pretty much anything since we've done the podcast. Like, I really enjoy talking to all our guests, but this rebrand is just painted in a whole new light. And, you know, Kyle and his team have been a pleasure to work with. They've gone out of their way to go above and beyond to make this thing really special. So I think we're really excited to release this rebrand to everybody out there listening, and uh, I hope you guys love it as much as we do. And one of the best things is the rebrand not only positions Conquering Columbus as a whole, but all of our guests in more of a uh, professional and clean and formalized look that you know they deserve. We have super, super high-quality, amazing people on here, and I think that this is going to represent them really well, so it's been great. So thanks again to Studio 301. Yeah, if you guys want to learn more about Studio 301, go check out the links down in the show notes. Help support Kyle and local teams here in Columbus. And uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the interview. So what does it look like from ideation to creation? I mean, you obviously watched your husband go through it. Yep. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe reflecting on some of the things that you and him had to go through to make that happen yep. would be interesting. Yeah. I think the, the early stages of ideation are maybe the most interesting because that's when the universe of possibility is wide open, right? Like you're not thinking about you're not thinking about the laws of physics, you're just thinking about what you want to see happen. Like what, you know, how, what sort of, what thing you want to manifest. So that's very exciting. For UB, the process was all in. It was about a year between the time I had the original thought, which was why is beauty so complicated? Why do I need a dozen different brushes and sponges just to put on makeup or skincare and look the way I want to look? Why am I sitting in my car with a pile of brushes and my hands messy because I've given up on the brushes? Isn't there a better way? You know, that sort of old, like, there's got to be a better way, right? That sort of emotion. Um, That was right around January 2017, which coincides with when my husband's product, Switch Flip, was launching at CES. And so we're packing, you know, we've got the branded Switch Flip t-shirts and all the other grip and gear that we're taking out to Vegas. And it's time for me to pack all of my makeup and my clothes and stuff. And I look at this pile of brushes. And um, I think most women who wear makeup have had this experience when it's time to pack. And you look at your vanity and you think, only one of you gets to come with me. Right, so having to make that typical choice of you know which one to take, um, so that was kind of the beginning of it. From there, I spent you know maybe two months just kind of thinking about it in in the car or complaining to my husband that I was shopping and I didn't find it. I went to a couple of industry shows to see if I could find something like it there, and finally my husband was like, "This is ridiculous! Like you're spending so much money." you are going to all these shows and you keep talking about it. I don't even know what you're talking about. Why don't you just try to make the thing yourself? Which is what I would recommend. Look, there are so many things we have done wrong with UB. So, I mean, we could have three more episodes on like the mistakes. Um, But one of the things that we did right was start cheap, right? Work 
um, with our own hands, create our own prototype, see if we could figure, I mean, we're smart people, see if you can kind of, we don't, there's no, you know, engineering skill in our household, but just see if we could figure out how to make a thing work and look kind of the way we want it to, wanted it to work and look. So that's what I did. I cut up a bunch of old brushes, you know, uh, bits of metal and plastic and ribbon and took a, you know, my favorite hot glue gun and just glued everything together, came up with a couple of different Frankenstein-like contraptions and finally made something that was almost there. And then I took that to an industrial design firm and rounds of prototypes, 3D printed, coordinate with a manufacturing facility, and then we finally ended up with UV in the form that it is today. So so you get UV to a point where you're happy about the product. Mm-hmm. Do you then decide to raise money at that point, or what does it look like? No, I didn't um, for two reasons. One was I uh, very selfishly wanted to control the direction of this, what I considered my third child. I think that's another mistake we can add to. <laughs> the, not the, you know, not the self-funding is, a, you know, that is not a mistake. But the way you think about your business, I think women in particular tend to be very emotional about how we see our businesses, uh, which can lead to making some not ideal decisions. But anyway. I digress. So one was I wanted to control it. I wanted, if it was going to fail, I wanted it to fail on my dime because of the decisions I made. I was still getting to kind of know the business. So the last thing I wanted was someone, some know-it-all investor coming in um, telling me what to do and I, you know, having to, you know, butting heads. I also didn't want to spend, because at the time I was still employed full-time by Wendy's um, and in an intense job that required quite a bit of travel. So I didn't, I had, you know, a few hours every day, you know, very late at night, very early in the morning. And I didn't want to spend 90% of those hours managing investors, you know, trying to convince them or appease them or, you know, which all of this sounds very arrogant because like in hindsight, well, look, if someone's going to show up with a check, yeah, you should try to appease them, right? Like you should. Um, so that's the big reason why I didn't. This, the other reason why I did not pursue outside funding is because I had no idea how expensive this was going to be. Uh, I had funds set aside from savings, from some equity I was cashing in, and I thought, uh, you know, this will be this will be enough. It'll, we'll launch it. We, you know, we'll get the inventory, do some marketing, we'll run some ads. It'll be fine, and then it'll just kind of run itself and. You know, the rest is history, right? Billions. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, you know, we, we were like, oh, you know, we'll be on the yacht in like six months. We'll be, we'll buy that yacht, right? Um, that didn't happen at all. Not anywhere close to it. And so, yeah, I think, I think in hindsight, we are now just about two years in, right? We formally launched in July of 2018 because that's when I took a step away from law and put you know more effort into it and more money so we're coming up on just about two years i think honestly i think probably about a year ago would have been the right time for us to start aggressively looking for money and i say a year ago because that was right around the time maybe a little a little less a little more than a year when we were named time magazine's best invention right when we won that big award it was kind of like all eyes were on us and i don't think i leveraged it the way 
I sh- probably should have. Um, so, you know, that's not to say that, you know, I think we will this year be looking for to take on a little bit of money. Um, there are a few things that we're working on in that respect, but it's certainly, I think taking money earlier would have taken some of the pressure off of the family financially. But, you know, nothing in this world is free. So it's everything's a trade-off. So talk about that point when you decided to leave a, a very successful career. Yeah. What you describe as maybe one of the dream jobs mm-hmm. for you at that point in your life to jump off, pursue this full time. At that point, did you even know for sure if it was going to work? Did you have enough traction? Oh, no, not at all. Nope. I, I had no idea whether it was going to work, but I believed it would. I believed I had... When we did, we had enough money kind of saved as a family so that we wouldn't be on dire straits um, if it didn't. But I knew more than anything that if I didn't put my full self into it for at least a year and a half, that it would never flourish, that it would never grow. My husband, his product, early on, he licensed it to a third party, and it you know, there were some struggles, there was some misalignment, and then eventually he had to just kind of shelve it for a while. So I saw that, um, and we thought about that as we were deciding whether we, you know, when you make a product, you can either license it out, you can sell it right away, or you can just kind of grab the bull by the horns and grow your company. We saw we saw what happens with the licensing path. It Again, because I was overly emotional and saw it as my baby, right? Um, I was not looking to just kind of sell it to someone right away, flip it. I wanted to sink, really sink my teeth into this, um, again, in the pursuit of growth and opportunity to experience life in a richer and deeper way. So, yeah, so I didn't know. There was absolutely no certainty. But I was certain that it was time for me to leave my job because what had been a dream job was no longer, in part because of some things that were happening internally, but mostly because of the ways in which I had grown. You know, any kind of relationship you're in with either a person or a, or a, a company or a position, there has to be some give all around for growth. And I, I think I just grew in a very kind of funky and un, um, unpredictable way where I, the role was no longer fulfilling to me. So it was time to go. Okay, so how do things look today? You know, what's changed over the past couple of years? And maybe talk a little bit about some of the things you're focused on right now at UB. Yeah. And, and maybe even before, I'd be curious, before we jump to that, to keep it chronological, what does the go-to-market model look like as you jump off and you say, okay, now I'm gonna put all my effort and time into this, mm-hmm. I'm gonna start to scale it. Yep. Um, are you looking to build relationships with uh, like different retailers yes. or what does that look like? Yes, yes, yes. So early on, again, because we were self-funded and my research, I mean, I make it sound like I just like, you know, like like some hippy-dippy floating into, you know, let's just try things. But no, I, you know, I'm a lawyer. So I research things extensively, right? And so a lot of my decisions are um, guided by gut and instinct, but underlying the gut and instinct is a set of data and research that I've been meticulous about. And so being um, self-funded, approaching wholesalers, particularly the type that I would want to get on the shelves at to establish the the type of brand that I'm trying to build, frankly, is a little out of reach. And it was at the time, being unknown, no PR. I mean, now we've got 
press in everything from, you know, very nerdy Time magazine to, um, you know, you know, traditional beauty magazines and kind of everything in between newspapers. Like we've gotten quite a bit of press, so we're very fortunate there. But as a new brand, new product, fairly new category when you think about it. What we're trying to do in the tool space. Most of the tools that you see on the market, easily 90% of the market is, you know, mass-produced, made-in-China, traditional paintbrush-style tools that aren't solving the problem that we are solving, aren't even trying to solve because their model is just churn, 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 push these kind of shitty tools on people. Uh, and when people try to use them and feel terrible about themselves because they're not getting the results they want, turn around and sell them a, a different flavor of the same tool because um, that's the model. We're doing something different. But because it's different, it makes it a little more of a challenge to sell in, right? A retailer m- knows what a traditional thing looks like, knows what the path is to sell it. For something that's a little different, it takes a little more a little more effort, a little more marketing, a little more education. Um, so early on, wholesale was not my was not my goal. Also, to supply wholesale, you need to have vast amounts of inventory that we just didn't have. We couldn't afford it at the time. So for us, it was purely direct-to-consumer. And we did that. We focused on that. Uh, we were intentional about focusing on that for the first year. We had you know, a deal we did with HSN. We did some sampling with FabFitFun. A couple other you know, more traditional wholesale opportunities came, kind of fell in our lap, and we took them, of course. But our focus was direct-to-consumer because that's where you get to control the messaging. That's when you get to develop the relationship um, with your customer, which is what I wanted more than anything. You get real-time feedback. Hey, my my product came, but the you know the bottle was smashed open. Like, oh my god! Like, I'm so sorry. I'll replace it. And you think, oh my god! I'm so glad it was just you and not like you know 70 cases of it that went to Sephora, right? So the that direct-to-consumer approach for us was really about getting it right, making sure we were delivering something that people enjoyed, getting our return customer rate up, even which is interesting because we are not a traditional consumable product. Um, so there's some, you know, the, the architecture of our tool actually lends itself very nicely to uh, a more traditional replenishable model. So getting our return customer rate up, getting some reviews out there, getting people to start talking about this, about us. But, uh, we knew early on that direct-to-consumer was not going to be the whole show. This is not, you know, circa 2010, you know, we are not Warby Parker, we are not Rent the Runway, we are not of that generation where Facebook was cheap, where, um, you know, Instagram was, you know, brand new if it even existed. This is not that. Now, direct-to-consumer is very, very competitive because you're not competing just with other tools, you're competing with, you know, NBC is launching some new show, and you're competing with American Airlines has a a sale on on fares to Hawaii. Like you're competing against the world, um, and we recognize this. So I think retail for the future, it's absolutely omnichannel. Absolutely, um, you have to have a balance of direct to consumer e-commerce. And frankly, um, to the extent that you can do selling shows, some of our best relationships have been developed from these kind of small 3,000-person shopping events that we've participated in. They're not necessarily immediately the most profitable because you've got travel and shipping and all of that. But people come back to us, they learn our story, and they spread the word. So 
and then and then there has to be a healthy um, wholesale kind of brick and mortar combination. It, it's so for us. Sorry, that was a very long winded. It's a very long winded answer to say that it's omni channel. That's our strategy. Absolutely omni channel. I mean, when you see um, uh, companies like, I mean, just yesterday, Brandless. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Brandless had this really creative platform where they, well, it, it's effectively like no frills products, but for millennials, you know what I mean? So very, you know, very simple, kind of minimalist approach to products. Um, and the theory was we're brandless, right? You, you're paying all this money for these brands, um, and that's what's inflating the price of your, you know, salad dressing and shampoo and, you know, dishware and, like, stuff, um, people today don't care about brands. They just want things that actually serve the purpose and their quality, and they want it at a fair price. So that was their model, and they were almost entirely direct to consumer using e-commerce, so social, paid social, Google. And they, I think, were up for about two years, almost 600,000 Instagram followers, just, you know, what from the outside appeared to be an absolutely bustling, amazing business. They just announced yesterday that they're ceasing operations and that's it they're done now they may reinvent themselves in some other way but i think when you and my belief is someone can probably check me on this i believe they were actually pretty well funded um so um you hear on one side on the sort of direct consumer side uh companies like brandless that seemed amazing from the outside and now they're folding and then on the wholesale side brands like i mean we've seen here in columbus we've seen the the effects of the sort of you know so-called retail apocalypse i don't think it's actually i don't think it's an apocalypse i think it's just changing but companies like uh, you know macy's is sh- shutting a whole bunch of stores forever 21 and most relevant to me forever 21 21's um, kind of beauty brand went out of business you know three months ago so there is some instability all around so as a new player in consumer products you're best positioned to kind of to go omni-channel that's you know it's diversification so you're battling educating the market but also developing that pole yes from the wholesalers to get them to put you on the shelves yep, exactly. and your technique for mastering that challenge was to go b2c to start yep to get momentum yep. and then get to where you are today. That's right. That's right. Because um, as we all know, like we all see through Instagram at this point, like again, five, almost 600,000 followers and they're closing their doors, right? There's, you know, there's almost, there's very little correlation between the number of followers that you have and the number of dollars that you're making, right? Um, again, this is not circa 2010, right? But I will tell you, every retailer that we speak with, when you start talking to them, they go right to your page, right? They want to see what's going on there. They want to see, you know, your aesthetic. They want to see that you are consistent and consistent in your attempts to engage, which, like, (laughs) sometimes we're not because mostly it's just me doing it. Um, Apologies to my followers who have reached out and I have not responded. It's not you. It's me. But it still does play a role, right? They're, the two worlds, the sort of social media marketing, direct-to-consumer stuff does not exist separate and apart from the in-real-life brick-and-mortar stuff. Like, they're, they're, they're intertwined. So, yeah, it's, I, uh, I think um, one follows the other. And when you, when you talk to some of these retailers, they will tell you to your face, well, we want to see... We want to see you get to you know twenty thousand followers. We want to see your engagement at X, 
and we want to see X number of reviews before we'll start talking about you internally. So it's a process. Because again, for them, it's a real estate game, right? Each shelf costs, you know, has to, has to pull in a certain amount of dollars. And if they can't, there's no guarantee, obviously. Um, but they will use as a proxy anything that they can get their hands on, which a lot of times is like how cool you appear to be on social, right? Are you going to be able to tell, you know, a million followers that now you're on sale at Sephora, go check them out, and at, then have people come in asking, you know, for your products for, for sell-through. They want to see that because it's risky for them because, you know, it's tough out here in these streets for retail. Isn't that the truth? Well. I, I think that's a good place to kind of talk a little bit about. So what's today look like? What are yeah. some of the goals and initiatives you're working on right now? Maybe next one, three, five years. Oh, Where do man. you see these going? This is like, do we, how much time do we have, right? I feel like <laughs> I could talk and talk. I mean, I can talk and talk. But this on this subject in particular, I can talk and talk. Here's, here's what is going on, right? We, I have taken this company through its kind of early infancy. I won't say, like, if you were to ask me, is the infancy over? Absolutely not. This this baby is not walking yet, right? This baby is still kind of drooling and looking around a little confused. It's fine. It's fine. But part of the problem is that I have not approached this company, this enterprise, with the right mindset. And we talked a little bit about this before um, before we started recording. But this this concept again of like this company is my baby. Like for I for in every interview, every time I talk about it, I'm like this this is my third child and I, you know, I love it so much and uh, no, that's not the right way to think about it. Right? This is a business and it ha- things have to make sense and like at some point it st- has to start performing. And if it's not performing, it's not reaching the the sort of numbers or the reach that you have set out, then you have to ask yourself, well, was I unrealistic? In my case, yes, I, I absolutely was unrealistic in my targets. Um, and also, you have to ask yourself, well, um, what do you need to change in order to reach something closer to a realistic target? Um, and in my case, I left. Um, I left my job at Wendy's. Shout out to anyone at Wendy's who's still listening. I I, I do love them. It's a great company left my job at Wendy's, j- jumped in, full immersion, the same as like hopping on that plane to Tokyo, right? Full, like I'm not thinking about anything, like this is this is what I'm doing. And I remember when I got to Tokyo, I thought, oh, well, you know, I studied Japanese for three years at Yale. Like I'm, I'm so nice with my Japanese. And I landed and I didn't know fuck all for the, like the, I, it was, I was so confused and so lost and turned up the time difference and the speed with which people spoke and the expectations. So I was totally in over my head. I mean, I was fully immersed. And so very much in the same way, I fully immersed myself in this business, but I did it the way I think entrepreneurs typically do. And especially um, entrepreneurs with, like myself, no business background. I've always been very independent and confident that if I just researched enough, I'd be able to figure it out. So we need to do some marketing. Okay, well, I'm going to listen to every podcast on marketing and read every book. I'm going to I'm going to read the entire help section on Adobe and I'm going to learn how to graphically design, right, which is ridiculous, right? Um, Because that alone, that's actually a profession that's like that's a thing that people study for years to do, right? It would be just as ridiculous if someone said, you know what, I've got some legal troubles, I'm just gonna read a couple books and I'll be in court tomorrow. You know, like, who did I think I was? So 
I got very deep in the weeds on every aspect of the business. And I, I, I regret it because it cost me time, but I don't regret it because I now fully understand you know, what I'm working with. So everything from marketing to finance, logistics, supply chain, new product development was me. I wore all of those hats. And at different points, you know, you're, you're so full of hats, you're like, this hat's gonna fall off, and I would just toss it to someone, and be like, here, you wear this hat for a little while, and I'm doing all the things, and I turn around, and the person wearing the hat was basically sitting playing Nintendo. And I'm like, what, what is going on, right? So I'd have to take that hat back and do it myself. And that's not a way, that's not how you run a company, right? I think we're in, and I think more of us need to talk about this, right? There is definitely this, like, Gary V hustle mentality, like, you know, you got to work all the time, you got to hustle and grind it out. And so in my head, I'm like, I'm no longer working 50 hours a week as a lawyer. That's 50 hours a week that I should be doing, doing, doing. And now I'm putting my effort into this business that I'm building for my family. So I should probably be working 100 hours a week or however many hours there are. I should always be working and I should be in the weeds and I should be doing the most. Why hire someone, someone else when I have the time? And I think that mentality leads to burnout, but more importantly, it prevents you from, from growing into the type of leader and having the type of leadership experience that you are actually pursuing when you decide to become an entrepreneur, right? I mentioned there's a book called um, The E-Myth, or The E-Myth Revisited, um, which I just read now. The timing was just crazy, so I read it kind of beginning of January, uh, maybe late December. And around that time, I'd started to think, you know, I am spinning my wheels. There's so much about the business that I enjoy, particularly interacting with customers and the new product development, um, the R&D process. I love um, when I have good people and I'm staffed up, I love working with them. But there are things that I just don't enjoy that much. And, you know, wondering, is this being in the weeds the wrong approach? Like, this sacrifice that I feel I'm making is it even worth it, right? And I started thinking, you know what, like I'm so embarrassed to admit this, but I kind of miss practicing law. Because I talk a lot about getting out of your comfort zone and doing something new and being bold and, and growing and the adventure and all of that. But like, um, I came to the realization that there's nothing wrong with having a comfort zone that you're in sometimes. And so I thought, if there was an opportunity to practice law a little bit, you know, not not abandoning the business, not stepping out of it at all, that might be something that's kind of nice. So I read this this book, the Ebent book, um, and basically the author said everything I just said. It was like, most entrepreneurs do the same thing. I'm going to start a business, and I'm going to do all of the things for the business because I have time now. I left my job. I'm going to do all of the things. It's going to be great. And then that's how businesses burn out and people end up you know, businesses, uh, business owners burn out and businesses don't reach the potential that they actually can because it's a failure to recognize that whatever it is you're building has several components that likely need to be built possibly by you to start, but then you need a team, you need a solid team and you need to focus on the infrastructure as the entrepreneur in order to achieve that vision. You need help doing it. And I, I was very reluctant to bring on that help. And, you know, you bring on help and then you get burned and then you think, I'm never going to trust again, right? So learning that you have to push past that and be strategic about it. Um, so I finished this book and I think, oh my gosh, I've been doing it all wrong. 
like I felt suddenly free because it was permission to admit that I needed help. And almost like you should be embarrassed if you don't admit that you need help. So it's like, okay, I need help. I do, right? But I know myself and I know the only way that I'm going to step out of the weeds is if I've occupied my time with something else. Like if I, if I physically cannot stop what I'm doing and pop onto Canva and make a thing to put up on Instagram or, you know, like try to revise my, my brand deck myself with my like raggedy Adobe skills, you know, like if I do not have the time to do that, then I have to be more efficient and I have to delegate. So just after I finished this book, I'm on LinkedIn, someone sends me a message. They're looking for an attorney with my skill set, my level, my, like my background. Um, would I be interested? And I said, well, you know, ordinarily I would be, but as you know, because it's all over LinkedIn, I'm running a business and, you know, this is kind of my priority right now. Um, and I also can't, com- you know, I can't commit to more than X number of hours a week. Um, this company is on the West Coast. I'm like, I'm not relocating. We're just not, that's not what we're trying to do right now. My family's comfortable here. Um, and they said, we don't care. We'll take what we can get, which was like amazing. Um, so, I, two weeks later, started at this new company, kind of on a contract basis. Short term, we'll see where it goes. But in the two, three weeks that I've been with this company now and preparing for it, I have put a marketing person in place. I've put, I've kind of elevated my ops person um, who's doing crazy things. We're bringing on a new salesperson. Like all of the roles are getting filled because now I am out of the way. Like I've, I, taking on this role has gotten me out of the way um, and we've made more progress in the last two weeks than we did in like the months before it. So I'm, I'm relieved, yes. So really filling out the team and yeah. continuing to growth would be kind of the main goals. You know, I, before we get to our last question of the show, I guess the last thing, I, the second last thing I'd have for you mm-hmm. is do you have any advice for our listeners out there? You've done a lot. You've seen a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, you've started your own company. If you're listening out there, a lot of people, young professionals, entrepreneurs themselves, mm-hmm. what would you tell them? Oh, my gosh. What wouldn't I tell them? Well, I think, um, so, um, oh, gosh, there's so much. Well, for, for young professionals, especially those who are in a place where they're not certain that they're living to their potential, I would tell them that there is time. I think, you know, in your kind of early 20s, 30s, you start thinking, oh my God, like, you know, I'm supposed to be doing X by now, and I'm supposed to have this much money, and I'm supposed to be married to this person, we're supposed to have these houses, and, you know, you get like really kind of wound up, but there absolutely is time, and that these kind of early years are the time for you to focus on your craft, become excellent at something, develop your reputation. If you're doing, if you're doing those things and you're doing exactly what you should be doing, when you're ready to make a change, you know, if you're thinking about starting a business, make sure that you're well-researched um, and that you have the resources to support that change. I think the other dangerous thing that happens in a lot of the sort of like social media, like entrepreneur guru world is like we push people to just jump into it, man, just do it. Like if your heart's telling you, just go for it. And it's like, whoa, that's actually a recipe for disaster, right? Like be measured and be thoughtful and plan for it and and, and it'll work out. I want to, um, you know, I, I don't know how many of your listeners are in this demographic, but 
for women kind of 37 plus. I started this company at 39, and I feel very passionately about this, that you know, just as UB is a tool that kind of defies expectations, it's a brush that doesn't really look the way you would expect it, um, and yet it performs better. It's surprising. In much the same way, you know, you get to your kind of late 30s as a woman, maybe you've had some kids, you're in a job for a while, things start to feel like, I think most, most of my friends who are in this age group have had this moment where they look around and they think, oh my God, is this it? Like, is this really, like, is it, is it over? Have I already had all the fun, all the romance, all the excitement, all the surprises, all of the like special things that people look forward to in their lives? Is it already done? And now you're just like, because the message always just seems like implicitly, yeah, it's over, right? Move over, like just get prepared for, to become a grandmother one day, like that's, which is also special. But the message is that's absolutely not it. Like, if there's something in you to do, do it. And there's no such thing as too late. So that's just kind of the message that I think I try to share as often as I can. I think it's a great message, Adia. And I think, you know, a good place to kind of take us to our last question of the show, which is centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, Mm -hmm. and that is live uncomfortably. Mm. And without Mm -hmm. telling you too much about why we picked that particular phrase, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply? To your life and career. Um, oh my gosh, it's like I should have that. Can we go get tattoos later? Maybe right we'll... now. Right now. <laughs> Let's do I, it. I don't have a single tattoo yet. That oh. would probably be living pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> um, I feel like I have absolutely, I, I've made that from start to finish. That's been my life. Where, although I wouldn't say you should intentionally look for discomfort, um, but I do think that growth and opportunity always happens during moments of discomfort, right? If I had been, honestly, if I had been totally satisfied and happily ever after in my career um, and my family situation, um, I wouldn't have started this business. There was some discomfort to it, and that pushed me to try something else, even though it was scary, it was uncertain. There's something, maybe this makes me a little, I don't know, like a little weird, but there's something really unappealing about comfort. And so, yeah, absolutely. When you can pursue something that feels a little bit risky, I think the best things come from that. Well, that's a perfect answer. And yes. thanks so much, Adia, for taking the time to tell your story and sharing it with our, our listeners. No, thanks for having me. This was awesome. I mean, I you know, part two, part three, part four. I'll be back next week. You know, right. we can we'll keep, just, we'll keep an eye just out keep, for just it. Keep it go- <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, uh, Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to learn more about Adia or UB Beauty, Check out all the links down in the show notes. Again, we appreciate you guys, all your support. Like us on Facebook. Leave us a rating on iTunes. You know the drill. And we will talk to you next week. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like. Share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. 
Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to work with like-minded businesses to raise money and participate in large-scale volunteer efforts and improve educational opportunity for youth in our community. To learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That's smallbizcares.org. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. If you could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.